Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. I'm joined with our first returning guests, uh, Emily and Nick of Wild Think. Um, we're very happy to have them uh, to talk about the enrichment vending machine, Wild Think, and some other uh, really cool topics. So, uh, Nick and Emily, uh, thanks so much for coming back. For I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I didn't realize we were the first return. So yeah, you. no, no pressure, but you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it hasn't been going long enough to get uh, returns, but we talked uh, our first conversation, uh, and to anybody that hasn't listened uh, to that, I would recommend uh, going back and and checking it out. Um, we're going to do more of like a quick overview of the uh, company this time and focus on some different topics. Uh, so if you want to <clears throat> go a little bit more in depth into Wild Think and uh, Nick and Emily's backgrounds, uh, definitely check that episode out. I will link uh, to it in the uh, show notes. Uh, but uh, do you guys want to give a sort of uh, overhead view of what uh, Wild Think is and, and what the sort of um, purpose of the company is, why you started it? Yeah, I think I'll let Nick take that one. Um, he was the original kind of vending machine inventor, um, and I kind of tagged along with him. So <laughs> he can give you the full story. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, I'm, I'm sure I said more about it the last time, but I never really in, intended to start any kind of company, but um, basically the animal vending machine was an idea I had during my master's thesis. And I wanted to give animals a better way to have enrichment that didn't require keepers to be around. So I gave them something where they could find tokens, spend their time looking for and getting tokens from their enclosure and using them to get a treat. And the idea was just to keep them more active, more thinking about their surroundings, more exploring their enclosure, um, solving puzzles and challenges to get these tokens and using them. And I got about as far as proving it was possible before my thesis ended. So Emily took up the mantle here after me, and we came up with a revised model that was still barely functional. And um, we wanted to see if we could make a quote unquote professional version that that zoos could actually use long term. And that's where Wild Thing came from. And that's been our uh, big focus. But um, Emily has also spent a lot of time building up a really cool enrichment database and uh, a lot of supplementary helpful materials for people working at zoos or working with animals that can learn about how to make enrichment, interesting types of enrichment for different animals, um, and kind of a lot of the stuff that Kyle does. We stepped on his toe a little bit. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, and anybody that uh, that follows me will will be you know familiar. I've I've shared quite a bit of your uh, resources because they are uh, great. And I and uh, we talked about this in the last conversation, but it is not easy making a database of enrichment. It's very very time consuming, uh, and it's very hard to consistently come up with ideas and and have and even if you're sourcing those ideas, difficult to source. So. Um, I commended you then, and I will commend you now for uh, the the work you've done you've done there. Um, yes, it's a uh, it's a pretty impressive database. It's grown since we last talked. Yeah, definitely a little bit. Um, you know, I try to add as as much as I can when when I have free time. But um, we are a nonprofit, and it is free, so um, it's kind of something that I do on the side a little bit. Um, We'd love to get some more ideas from the public as well. We do have a form that people can fill out to submit. Um, and the idea is just, yeah, to kind of have everything in one spot where people can come and find resources for zoo animals, farm animals, pets, things like that, and have one spot to go to so you're not going to Pinterest and this aquarium's website and this zoo's website. Put it all in one spot, but there are thousands of enrichment ideas out there. So it's going to take a long time to get them all in one spot. Yeah, no, it, it, it sure is. It's uh, no easy task. So um, uh, back to the enrichment vending machine a little bit. Um, in the last ep- uh, podcast, you guys were sort of just uh, rolling it out. Uh, I've been lucky enough to actually uh, handle one myself um, and it's a, it's a very, very impressive machine and, uh, it's pretty amazing what you guys have accomplished with it. Um, it was, uh, it was fun to put together on my end. So, um, do you guys want to sort of, uh, where are you guys at with the rollout and, um, and how does, how does that look right now? Yeah. I mean, we, well, I'm glad you found it fun to put together. <laughs> We've done a couple of those and they, there's a lot of pieces. Yeah, so. there is. Yeah. Yeah, it it get gets complicated, but um, so we mailed and hand delivered five vending machines to five different zoos in the U.S. and Canada, um, and we delivered those between March and Juneish. Seattle was August. August. Yep. August of uh, last year of 2022. So um, we've got all five machines out and we were able to get them all kind of assembled and up and running before the year was over. And they are all still in their places, but some are up and running and some are not up and running. We've run into quite a few, I guess, research and design snafus that we expected, not per se, the ones that we exactly expected, but um, we expected that there would be some issues because the machines went out to apes, which are very destructive and very intelligent. So um, some issues have been due to the animals sticking things up in the vending machine overnight and completely cracking the insides. Some issues have been due to human error, you know, over tightening things. Um, Some things have have just cracked. and then a couple issues have been due to the the brains of the machine and still kind of unidentifiable as to why those issues were happening. But um, we had some token sensor errors and things like that. So all part of the learning process. And every zoo that they've gone to has been able to use the vending machines for 
um, at least several months, which is great. And all the animals seem to really enjoy it. We've gotten great feedback from everybody, but we're still working out the design kinks, um, which is kind of what a beta testing period is for. Yeah, and 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 they went out to uh, orangutans, or is there any other apes that are using it? I believe Oklahoma City has been using it with chimps a bit, which um, chimps seem to be a little nicer because they're more, they may be more outwardly aggressive to the machine, but they don't sit there and think about how they can destroy it. So they'll, right. I think they'll give up faster. The orangutans will sit there, uh, you know, devise their tools, build new tools if they had to before. Uh... Right. Yeah. And, and for anybody that doesn't know, it's essentially a, um, and I would encourage you to go onto wild things, uh, website and stuff. Uh, but it looks like a, a very, like it's, it's almost like a Pelican case sort of heavy duty luggage, uh, box and it's filled with, um, magic and you put, uh, tokens in and, and then the food comes out for the animal. It hangs on the outside of the, uh, the enclosure. Um, and, and it looks like, uh, like you guys have done a ton of work on the insides. Like most of it looked like it was 3d printed and it's all relatively proprietary on, on your end as far as developing it all. So it's, uh, it is quite an impressive machine. Yeah. And it, uh, you know, having to develop it all like that from scratch is kind of a mixed bag because it's nice that we have total control, but then it's also, that means when something does break, we have to um, source those parts again, which means we basically have to fabricate them again. And the 3D printing doesn't take that long, but you know, some of the pieces take a while to print, some are expensive to print. And um, yeah, the, it's just um, more maintenance than we probably expected, but probably should have expected in the first place, but that's how it goes is we've been doing this a long time, but it's still very much trying to figure out what the best way to do things is. And that yeah. will take, you know, I don't expect to have it all ironed out anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, I mean, keepers have been working with, uh, chimps and orangutans and a variety of apes for a very long time and continuously, uh, uh, get outsmarted by them in just the day-to-day -day, um, happenings at the zoo. So trying to build something that is, um, you know, effective enough that it will hold their attention over a long period of time, but also durable enough that you can uh, plan for mistake, uh, plan for like, you know, those instances where they're, you know, putting things up into the inventing machines and mm -hmm. uh, it's it's very hard to to predict. So that's a pretty mm -hmm. pretty big task. Um, so as, as far as like, if, if you could kind of summarize the, uh, the data around what you know, uh, what you've been collecting over this past year, um, and the sort of lessons that, that you've learned, like moving forward, would you be able to sort of summarize that? Sure. Yeah, I think, um, most of what we've learned is about, machine functionality and how the insides of the machine are or are not working. So the machine has probably, you know, 70 or 80 individual pieces of whether it's 3D printed or um, 
laser cut Delrin, which is a really thick plastic. It's probably got about, you know, 80, 70 or 80 individual pieces that are connected inside the machine. And most of the data we've received back from the zoos, we, we send out like a questionnaire kind of survey that the zoos are able to fill out and send back to us. And any of the concrete feedback we've gotten aside from you know, how many tokens the zoos are using per week and what kinds of food they're using is just, we're seeing an issue with this piece. This piece is spinning, but it's getting caught when it's spinning or this cracked when I put it up. So I think initially we expected to get data pertaining to how the zoos were using the machine in the first year, but we haven't really even gotten to that point quite yet because we're still in the phase of are all the pieces inside the machine working as expected? So that's been most of the data. Um, and just comparing across all of the zoos, each individual piece of the machine. And if we see you know, more than one zoo that has the same issue with the machine and that piece of data saying this broke, then we'll look at redesigning the individual pieces. So that's typic that's in a nutshell kind of the the data we've we've gathered. But um, we've also gathered data pertaining to how many tokens the zookeepers are putting in an enclosure at a time. We've also gathered data about the types of food that each zoo has tried with the vending machines. And then some zoos are even hiding tokens in other enrichment devices, which is super cool. And we've gotten a couple videos back from zoos of orangutans having to use a stick to pull a token out of like a little plastic well mm. or foraging for it in wood wool and things like that. But we haven't gotten, um, I guess, quantitative data pertaining to token presentation quite yet. So hopefully that's the next step. Yeah. We also um, have gotten a lot of data about how it kind of fits in with a zoo. And if it is one of our goals was to make something that was useful for keepers. And we're finding out that it's there's definitely some tweaks we can make to make it a little easier to work with. It's uh, I think we're pretty happy with a lot of the stuff that was a pain point in our original models. But we're when you fix one thing, now the next thing on the list shows up. So we have some things we definitely would like to iron out. But um, part of it is also just uh, the reality that we got these out in the post-COVID world where it feels like every zoo is kind of at a skeleton crew amount of people and we got a lot of like, well, we, we can't really think about it yet because we have not enough keepers to like, we have just enough to do our, the things that have to get done and when that's the case, some new enrichment that people have to spend time learning um, drops on the priority list. So we've, that is still data. It's not exactly the data we've set out to find, but you know, we, we know what does work and doesn't work for the keepers and what could potentially make it easier for everybody. Yeah, no, that's definitely uh, a reality for, um, you know, the zoo community as a whole right now, as far as, um, you know, staffing levels and, and time. And there's a lot of, uh, if, if that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be so many, you know, talks about burnout and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, 
you know, I, I think, I think projects like this definitely do take away from keeper time, but I think they also, you know, give people the opportunity to, you know, get excited about something new and to see uh, real results, you know, happening in front of them. Um, I, I definitely, uh, you know, uh, what you were saying, Emily, with the, uh, you know, combining the enrichment and, and stuff like that is, is such a new way to not, cause you know, as a keeper, sometimes like you, you feel like the enrichment you have is just kind of stagnating and to be able to sort of rejuvenate your, your, uh, your, almost your entire program with an animal, with a single device is, is definitely where I see the, you know, the vending machine, uh, when it loses its sort of novelty initially, that's where I see the longevity really being impactful for the animals is, you know, uh, once that the novelty of, you know, putting, finding these tokens and, and getting rewards for them fades, like that's, that's definitely where, where I see it going. So, um, have you, have I was you, always, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to ask, um, uh, I know you said you didn't, uh, collect a whole lot of data around, um, a ton of data around the tokens specifically and how they were presented. Did you see any sort of like common threads with how like those resources were being used, uh, in, uh, I know, I guess maybe this is more relevant in like the chimp setting where there might be more than a small group of animals together, uh, how those resources are being used or, you know, did anybody form a pseudo capitalist society or anything <laughs> crazy like that? We've gotten some interesting stories. Um, the first ever orangutan that used the machine, the very original one built in 2015, moved to Seattle. And he's uh, housed with a female, and um, he uses the machine, but she does not. So she will hand him tokens to use, oh. at least so far in their, in their training session. So we've seen not really common across zoos but just some really fun stories about who's using it how and things like that and a lot of zoos are training with the tokens which yeah we've seen that as a reward um that's that's pretty fun yeah, yeah. combine training and enrichment at the same time is a uh, pretty interesting path yeah. Yeah, and we've even seen um, some of the apes actually hoard tokens and use them later. Um, so that's pretty interesting. It seems I I expected all of the orangutans to kind of do the same thing. I don't know why. Um, I guess maybe I'm biased. Have you heard of the Kong and the pillowcase from of orangutans? No, I don't so, think so. There's um, kind of this universal thing that all most orangutans will do if you give them a Kong and a pillowcase or a sheet. They'll all put the Kong in the pillowcase and just kind of like whip it around oh. and bounce it off stuff um, universally. Like they didn't learn it from, you know, it could be completely different zoos, orangutans who've never met each other. Um, so... I guess I've always have that had that preconceived notion of oh they're they're problem solvers they're kind of thinking in the same way they must be thinking um, like each other so it's been interesting to see that some groups of orangutans like the the guy at Seattle and his his lady friend who hands him the tokens that's one case at one zoo um, but at other zoos we'll see 
them competing for the vending machine or even fighting over who gets to put tokens in, we'll sometimes see, um, you know, one puts a token in and the other slides in front and intercepts the food that's coming out. So Mm. um, there's definitely some competition, I think, when there are multiple animals in one enclosure. Um, But yeah, it's been really interesting to just see that I guess the cultural differences of how each group of orangutans uses the machine. And I think part of it's probably influenced by the care staff and how they were trained to use the machine and how the, um, the group dynamic already existed prior to the vending machine coming in. That has definitely been an interesting thing is we hand delivered a bunch of these. So we got to watch how different keepers teach how the machine works to different uh apes and you know i had some tips from the first time i saw someone train but we saw some do a much more hands-on approach that was like a slower build up and others kind of go like here put it in here and you know the relationship that if you point during attendance that you're talking about versus you you may be newer so you have to do like i give you token i give you food you give me back token and build that up over time um but yeah it's been we see as much cultural difference between how keepers train how to use it as we do with how the animals use it yeah no that's super interesting because the that sort of role in of individuality in animal welfare and uh, you know things like enrichment and training uh, are are so interesting to me because there's just so much variation even with you know herd animals that that you you know there's 50 of them in a group and you know I think the lack of knowledge around you know the individual and its impact is more because we're not looking for it in those sort of group scenarios. So it's going to be super interesting to see. Yeah. Like, as you said, how, how, like what the common threads are and then what, uh, you know, the sort of divergence of individuality is going to play, uh, play with that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really interesting. I wonder if there's like a natural behavior that is closely you know, related to the Kong in the pillowcase that's causing everyone to, there has to be something. Isn't that weird? I've thought about that a lot and wonder, Nick was actually the one who originally told me about it. Um, But I've looked for it at pretty much every zoo I've gone to and I've seen it a lot and it's so interesting and I don't know what purpose it serves and I don't know if it even serves a purpose. Um, So that behavior itself is fascinating to me. Um, I have a feeling that's more of a general ape behavior than just orangutans, because I think mm. if you give a toddler the same thing, you'll <laughs> probably see them also whipping it around and trying to hit stuff. I've never seen it with bonobos, though, I have to say. Hmm. That's true. That's you've, worked with, you've worked with more apes than me, so you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's uh, yeah, going to be really interesting once... Uh... Once you guys can get more into the nitty gritty of how the tokens are being used and everything, so mm-hmm. so what's what are the like sort of iterations going to look like of the vending machine, and what are you sort of hoping to change in in newer ones? That's a really good, but I suppose loaded question. Um, we don't know enough right now with 
I think if we can get into a groove of a couple months without um, some major issues and we see what, like we were, I feel like we're getting pretty close to ironing out a lot of the issues we're seeing. So once we get there and we see what it looks like being used regularly, I think that will tell us a lot. Um, and it also goes with, you know, they're super not cheap to make. And, um, you know, the question is like, can we afford to make another with no changes versus what what would the R&D cost be if we did want to make those up? Um, and, and so it, very up in the air right now. Right now, all we're focused on is maintaining them and getting them into a, a solid place for functionality. Um, but I have all kinds of like pipe dreams for what it would look like in the future. But I, you know, one step at a time, I guess. Yeah, and I think people underestimate how expensive it is to make products, especially ones that you can't. Most products, you know, if you actually look into it, most products are just the same thing with different logos slapped on it, uh, from refrigerators to computers. Like it's all the same stuff, just with different logos. And there's a reason people do that is because it's super expensive to uh, make things that no one else does. So. Um, what would the what would the vending machine look like if you know budget wasn't a thing and you just you know Apple purchased Wild Think and you got, and they were just oh, like you know here you I go Tim Cook just ra made it rain on you guys like what would what would it what would it look like Oh it'd be amazing I mean it, yeah like Nick said it's so incredibly expensive especially because these um, these initial prototypes are all hand built so not only are we paying for the 3D printing and the materials, which, you know, Delrit, the Pelican case itself that it comes in is but pre-pandemic, you know, $250. Now, who even knows? Probably $500. Um, so, and that's just the shell of the thing, right? So all of these materials that go into the vending machine are incredibly expensive. And then the labor on top of it to have an engineer actually hand assemble each and every one. And the computer inside is a custom motherboard it's actually like a custom welded circuit board that our engineer built specifically for this so it's very expensive and i think with an unlimited budget we would scale up as much as we could because right now we are kind of at a bottleneck with even if we did want to make more right now in this very instant it would be um kind of dictated by how quickly our engineer could make those. And he has a full-time job outside of, um, you know, making our vending machines for us. So That's an unlimited big, budget, yeah. I think we would pay for, you know, somebody to do this full-time. And I think ultimately we would love to separate the token input and the food output. So they're two different things. And then later on that would give us the ability to um, have a token input trigger things other than just food it could be you know pink token equals food but blue token turns on the water machine or yeah. green token you know makes this sound play or you know pulls a trigger over yeah well. pulls a trigger over the uh shower head over the public or something like mm -hmm. that we um, have a, a central hub that can control any number of different modules would be my ideal future and and you know you can have one or you can have 50 of them and, and it doesn't matter how many you have and 
the tokens control them or you know we would figure that out when we get the money i suppose <laughs> yeah 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 the the opportunities for complexity with something like this are are too vast to even think about so Mm -hmm. Uh, it's definitely, yeah, the possibilities are, are sort of endless when you start to get into colors and shapes and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be super, super interesting. What, uh, what are the sort of goals for, for like wild think like is, is the vending machine, the, the sole focus, is there other things that you, you guys would like to, to focus on and, and become or, or what uh where's your sort of head at when when it comes to that emily and i i guess always kind of had a split mind in this like i came up with the vending machine a while ago and then wild think came out of necessity and uh i saw that like the vending machine is what lives in my head whereas um i don't want to talk for emily but she likes all of the ancillary supportive things that go into it with because you know just the vending machine is not enough there is we can't just give you a vending machine and be like okay your enrichment problems are solved there's a lot of help that goes into it and um you know, enrichment planning and helping i know emily really likes to help places that are underfunded and things like that um yeah work out their enrichment yeah i think nick hit the nail on the head you know i think um the vending machine product is fantastic but from a business model perspective um there are not enough zoos and apes in the world to make that a sustainable business itself. So I think that there needs to be um, some sort of additional things, which is why I started the enrichment database and started our wild work, which has um, some resources for zookeepers and animal caretakers to learn how to, you know, what are the basics of enrichment? How do you evaluate enrichment? How do you build a schedule? Things like that. Um, so I think if we were able to get the vending machine to a place where it could be used by multiple species, not just apes, um, because right now the tokens require a lot of dexterity. They've got to be able to pick them up. So if we get to a place where you could potentially train a carnivore to pick up a ball with their mouth and put this in the top of the vending machine, I think we've just, you know, expanded our world times 10. Um, and then if we were able to separate the food, the token input from the food receptacle or food output, um, I think that would really, really allow us to expand our business as well. But we would need to do a complete overhaul of the vending machine design. And so that's where we're kind of stuck. Um, it's incredibly expensive to make these things. And it's incredibly expensive to just do research and design. I mean, we're probably on version 8 or 10 of vending machine right now. Yeah. Um, and so we would need to do eight or 10 more versions to be able to split the two apart. So we're, we're trying to kind of weigh out, you know, cost versus benefit here and figure out what is the most effective way to have an impact on the lives of um, animals and human care. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, it's, 
it's tough in the in the industry of you know wanting to contribute to animal welfare and this is something that you know i run into with wild enrichment it's it's that balance between you know like as soon as you start charging for something all of the facilities that with the, you could probably actually have the biggest impact on like they they're just out of the out of the game now and that's a really hard sort of moral balance to have because um you know it's uh, these companies uh both of our companies they take money to support um i i i didn't build a, a vending machine um if fortunately for for my sanity maybe but uh I, you know, (laughs) I, I wish I came up with something like that, but, um, it, yeah, they, they cost, they cost money and it's, and it's tough to, uh, to balance those two things about, you know, getting, you know, facilities, the support they need, but also, uh, being able to support uh, your own business to support more facilities. So I, I definitely feel you in that, in that regard. Yeah. And like in, even outside of Wild Thing, the, we all have full-time jobs outside of Wild Thing because it is a not-for-profit. Definitely is not for profit. Yeah. Um, but like the career path that, that Emily and I have gone down, both diverge, and it kind of fits in along with how we would think about Wild Thing in the future. Like, uh, I I ended up in a tech job where I am like designing and testing and fixing things regularly. So that's, that's like the part of my brain that wild think interest is like the tinkering with stuff side. And I think, um, you know, Emily ended up working, uh, in with like shelter animals. So working with those people that obviously need the support and need the, the smaller, more just like, okay, cool enrichment is great, but any enrichment is better. Um, that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, it's kind of weird in our lives, probably without us really realizing that. I, I'm sort of the same, same way. I, I really like tinkering with things and, and taking things apart. And that's why I enjoyed assembling your, your vending machine so much. Um, I, I'm sure it would get old if you're assembling uh, tons of them, but, um, it was, uh, I'm this, and I think that's, that's why I enjoy, uh, these sort of behavioral husbandry programs a lot is because there's so much, uh, so many moving parts and there's so many, uh, so many sort of like feedback loops that you, that you're looking at with, uh, providing enrichment and, and tweaking things and, and seeing the reaction and, and all those sort of things. So I definitely, uh, understand where you're how your mind's working through, uh, the challenges in wild think. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, the vending machine also highlights, um, the sort of future with, uh, you know, the role of tech and, and things like AI and, and all sorts of stuff, um, coming into the zoo world and, and coming into, well, everybody's world and whatever field you're in. Uh, but I've already seen, uh, you know, different things like uh, AI and in, in different uh, camera systems to uh, see what animals are doing and and all sorts of stuff like that. What, uh, you know, do you guys have sort of thoughts on that whole space and, and, and where it's going and where do you think it's going to have impacts? Yeah, I mean, it's inevitable that 
it will play a bigger and bigger role. I'm sure at some point some zoo installs some kind of crazy like haptic floor thing that detects like how long an animal's been sitting on it and all kinds of weird stuff that breaks after like two days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's as someone who somewhat uh, is skeptical of a lot of the tech industry, um, there'll be a lot of kind of grifting before good things come out of it, I think. But that's, I think, the nature of the industry. But there's definitely, um, there's definitely stuff out there that I can really see being a big benefit with the right collaboration between the right people, I think, is what it'll take. Yeah, I think um, I was always surprised when I was interning or doing my thesis research at zoos. Um, I always thought it was crazy that people were still doing ethograms and taking data on pen and, you know, notepads with paper and they still do that and we still do that at the the animal shelter i work at as well um i think the animal world is for some reason like light years behind the rest of the world in terms of tech i don't know why um it could be because a lot of these buildings are cinder block and you don't get good wi-fi in there and yeah i don't know um so i think that technology and AI has the potential to positively impact the lives of animals in human care, of course. And especially if you're going to do studies on animal welfare, animal behavior, you want to collect data, um, you can use cameras that do some, you know, auto detection and auto data logging. Um, and then a human doesn't have to be either paid or spend an entire summer doing that. Um, but I think, I think this, the animal world is kind of stuck in their ways a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see as artificial intelligence as to, and as technology get a little bit more um, into our daily lives, even more than they are now. It'll be interesting to see how zoos and aquariums and shelters and circuses and places like that adopt it. Because um, I think it could be super useful in the right way, for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, uh, you know, with almost everything in the exotics side of things, uh, whether it's, you know, nutrition or, you know, general animal welfare practices, all those kind of things, like it all starts in, in agriculture because that's where the money is. And then it yep. flows toward exotics. So yep. I think, you know, looking at what is, is going on in a lot of the agriculture space with, uh, with tech is definitely where, uh, I'm, I'm sure the zoo world is, is heading. Uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff as you, uh, monitoring systems so they can tell like if a specific cow is, is sick in a, in a herd of hundreds. Um, so, uh, all sorts of things like that, I, I think, are are coming our way. Which, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it how it pans out. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it, especially with the AI stuff, is is still, uh, you know, it's bordering on the like gimmicky slash creepy side. You know, it kind of <laughs> flip flops yeah. depending on what you're doing. I put on the bottom of our of our shared podcast. Uh, I asked an uh, an image AI, and then like chat GPT to do, uh, 
uh, lemur enrichment. And the first image is like the weirdest looking puzzle feeder I've ever seen. And it looks like a, it's like a cage made out of sticks and there's like a, like yeah. a wrapped piece of like romaine lettuce. It's like still in the plastic wrap and the like lemur looks obese and also like it's a taxidermy <laughs> lemur. Uh, I was it, wondering what that was. Yeah. I was like, huh, is that a cognitive enrichment we're going to talk about? That's actually, I'm actually it, amazed by that. It, I don't know why. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but also like, what the hell is happening to this lemur? Like, it's, that's <laughs> it what I mean. It came straight out of images from Emily's enrichment database. <laughs> it probably, <laughs> probably. It's, and, and the one, there's one at the bottom that's like this like weird, uh, like indie game. I asked the same thing and I put like a different filter on it. And it came out like this, uh, it's like an indie game lemur, except it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a tail and it's wearing like a mask that looks like a lemur. Uh, it's yeah. the, wow. the list above that is what I asked chat GPT. I said, design like oh, a, okay. a, an enrichment program for a lemur. And it, 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 it's like oh. half these, it's like, you know, pretty like surface level, but like if you never cared for a lemur before, like, you know, it says like providing variety of branches, offering wide selections of fresh fruits and vegetables, installing outdoor habitat with plenty of foliage, uh, introducing toys and other stimulating objects to keep the lemur engaged, um, space to explore. Wow. Yeah. All, all sorts of stuff, uh, allowing the lemur to listen to comic music, calming music and sounds. That was a funny one. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, some of it's like kind of amazing and some of it's also gimmicky so i don't think it'll be totally. like that for very long but um yeah it is it is interesting i have to say i think that chat gpt did a great job i mean of course it's probably crawling the internet and pulling you know words and phrases and things like that but yeah. um and that's something it, you know things like this are things that ai is going to be good at because there's not a whole lot of like noise data on the internet for lemur enrichment so mm -hmm. like it it's not gonna find a whole mess of things that you're like what are you talking about you know there's gonna be articles on lemur enrichment that it'll find and spit back out to you but anytime you're like okay anyway, that kind of stuff i find it useful for but the creative things i'm like I, my brother's a photographer and he's both very interested and very afraid. And I'm like, I don't, AI will not come for your job unless like CEOs and stuff just don't care about the quality of things, which, yeah. Will. <laughs> so maybe it will be a problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to say when I feel like with stuff like this, it's, uh, yeah, it kind of just isn't a problem until it is. And then it's like, oh, well. What do you do with it now? Yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, we, we, we don't need to spend too much time on AI like every other podcast on the internet, but I thought it was just, uh, you know, interesting to, uh, ask it some questions and see what, I'm sure if I went more obscure, like I asked for like echidna enrichment, it'd be like, what? Cause there's probably no articles on the internet about that. So. Oh, I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you get pretty much the same list. The yeah. You'd probably get some yeah. calming, calming sounds and music for the echidnas. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was, uh, you know, some things around, um, you know, animal cognition and stuff like that. I know that's something you guys are very passionate about. 
Um, I, I was recently reading uh, An Immense World by Ed Young. I, I would recommend you guys read that if you, if you haven't. Um, and his sort of thesis around the book was um, this sort of bias we have as people into how animals should perceive the world or, you know, that just because their predominant sense isn't sight, uh, mm-hmm. that we sort of judge them as far as, um, you know, the, we're a superior way of seeing the world and um, mm-hmm. perceiving it, uh, you know, even when, you know, you see people uh, walking their dog and not letting the dog smell anything on the, on the route. And, and even that is a, is a way of you saying like, no, you don't need to smell that. You can just look right in front of you. Like this is, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I definitely see that sort of bias in the animal care world with a sort of bias toward, you know, cognitive based and, and food based enrichments. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear your guys thoughts on, you know, how expanding this, uh, works and, and how do you sort of, um, you know, accommodate the needs of, of such a wide variety of senses. It's like that quote that I feel like gets attributed to Einstein, but he probably <laughs> like never said every it. other quote. Uh, the the like, fish one. If you, yeah. If you judge yeah. a fish by climbing a tree or whatever. So, um, yeah, if you build enrichment for yourself, it's, um, TV well, and video games. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not the right way. You can draw some parallels. That's kind of why apes make sense to me because I can draw some parallels. Yeah. Be like, okay, well, what would they do? And it's more or less a functionally similar thing, just different environments and different contexts. But if you're thinking about like, um, yeah, hoofstock or carnivores or something, they're completely not on the same page at all and at work lately i've been um kind of by just because someone had to figure it out i've had to learn and do a lot of accessibility um testing Hmm. and not to compare people with um any kind of handicap or anything like that to some kind of animal but it's forced me to be like okay so how would someone that can't see interact with this and how would one who can't speak interact with this or can't see color interact with this and uh it's been fun to figure out and i don't think i realized till today that that may have been easier for me because i have been thinking about enrichment for a long time so it's been easier for me to kind of take myself out and be like okay if someone you know, for this set of senses and this experience, how would someone with these handle it? But into your point as well, to expand upon your point, I think there are senses that we don't even know exist because we don't have the capability of understanding that this gecko can insert yeah. verb that we don't know here, you know? Um, so it's really tough and i think this is you know partially where technology and ai can come in you know we were able to figure out that um butterflies i think it's butterflies that can uh sense i don't know if they what their vision is like but they can see you know 
the UV spectrum that we can't see. Mm -hmm. And we were able to see that with a UV um, filtered camera and things like that. And we were able to see different color patterns on flowers that a butterfly would see, you know, stripes on petunias and things like that. So yeah. there's a whole world of unknowns there and senses that we don't even know exist. So I think it's kind of impossible to create enrichment that's tailored to that until we figure out what those things are first. So um, I think that's where research uh, comes into play as well, you know, looking at each individual species that we think we know a lot of things about, but we probably don't. I mean, octopi, octopods, octopuses, whatever the yeah, plural is, are a great example. <laughs> um, you know, those, they've got a, a brain for each tentacle, right? And they're able to change their um, their chromatophores, their, their cells in their skin while they're blindfolded to match the mm -hmm. texture and the background and the color that they're on. So how is that even happening? We have no idea. Um, so I think technology is going to help us with that. But until then, I think the best that we can do is to use the senses that we do have to really uh, observe animal behavior and to study animal behavior and try to figure out what does this lion need the most? It probably doesn't need a ton of, you know, visual enrichment, maybe for hunting purposes, sure, but it probably needs a little bit more of scent enrichment, things that, that they um, access in the wild a little bit more often. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about, uh, you know, just because you also mentioned uh, octopus and, you know, cephalopods, like the the interesting thing about some of their color changing is like, they can't even see the, a lot of the colors that they're changing into, you know, uh, yeah. blending into their environment. So like the way we sort of are perceiving their color change is just completely different than even what they are. So I think right. it's a very interesting, uh, thought experiment for, for keepers to be doing is how, mm -hmm. you know, what does the world sort of look like for these animals? And, and, uh, I wrote down the center for zoo and aquarium animal welfare and ethics seesaw mm -hmm. at the Detroit, uh, zoo, uh, cause they mm -hmm. do a really cool workshop about, um, and they basically, you know, make you, uh, uh, like if, if it's a, like a small mammal or something, you get down on all fours and you go through the exhibit. And like, if it's a black, like if they see black and white, like there's, there's all sorts of different thought experiments they do to sort of uh, put you in a scenario where you might be experiencing the habitats uh, similar to the animal. So uh, doing exercises like that, I think is a very interesting way of making sure that you aren't inserting your bias as a uh, human that we predominantly rely on our sight and, uh, yeah. a little bit from a handful of senses. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Emily said, with all the senses we don't even know about, it's one thing to figure those out, which is a huge task. And then it's another, okay, we've figured out that they have these strange senses. What are the preferences for these senses? And like, okay, is every aviary in the U.S. or in a zoo, like, very aesthetically unpleasing design to most birds? Maybe. Who knows? Yeah, and it looks, just because it looks good to us, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you see... You see that bias. Uh, I, I've, I just talked about this in my last podcast um, with um, reptile exhibits, I find, are huge for that. Mm -hmm. Like, you see um, this 
uh, like arboreal reptile that has nowhere to climb and there's like pathos and all sorts of like fake plants hanging everywhere and it's like well you're just doing that so it looks good for visitors but it's not actually appropriate for the animal that's in it like it looks good but uh you know i I get questions like all the time about uh like uh, things like crocodiles or um anacondas and stuff like that it's like well they won't use their pool and like they're not spending enough time in the pool and it's like a crystal clear uh you know concrete pool and it's like well they don't sit in clear water that's a great way to die as as a you know a small uh you know a crocodile or anaconda and um Mm -hmm. the the ones that have made it to adulthood don't spend a lot of time in uh, you know, they're in marshes and they're in, uh, so yeah, like thinking about how the animal's perceiving and also their preferences and, and what it looks like yeah. in the wild, there's, there's a reason for a lot of those behaviors and preferences. And yeah, I, think, I think too, to your point, um, I think it's funny how we, a lot of zoos won't let you, if you go behind the scenes, they won't let you post pictures with cage bars in them, you yeah. know, which is fine to, you know, you don't, there's, a reason for that and you don't want the animal to look like it's living in a small cage but zoos spend so much money on barriers and moats and things like that but would a crocodile really care if there's a chain link fence surrounding his exhibit if he didn't have a concrete pool and he could you know swim in this marshy water he probably does not care about the chain link fence and never will care about the chain link fence. Again, it's for humans, you know, it's built for humans. And I understand that we want to make them visible and accessible to humans so that we can um, learn from them. But that's also pretty funny too, because we sometimes look at an exhibit and say, oh, it's so sad in there, but it might be really happy for that animal. The chain link doesn't matter to them. Yeah, that's a huge trade-off that you hear all the time. Like I think a lot of zoos that are doing it right. They have a lot of animals that you can't see when you go to the zoo and that's just the name of the game now. And I think, uh, the more advanced we make these habitats and the more, uh, actually tailored toward the sole goal of animal welfare, uh, as opposed to making major, major Mm -hmm. trade-offs for, uh, our benefits, uh, when we're visiting these zoos, I think, uh, that's just the reality of, of building those is, is not being able to see the animals all the time because they mm-hmm. have places to hide and uh, choice and control and environments that may not be conducive to being able to see them. So totally. Yeah. I'd say uh, answer to all of your question from before is just when in doubt, do what it looks like in the wild. Mm-hmm. What is it doing in the wild and give your best to give it that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, uh, if there was a sort of, you, you know, you guys are from different backgrounds and stuff, so I'd be interested to hear uh, your answer to this question sort of separately with your two uh, uh, different uh, different ways of approaching problems. Um, you know, if there was a poster that you could put up in every animal care facility that, uh, you know, people would actually uh, look at and read, what, uh, <laughs> what, would, it, what would it say and, and, and why? Nick, do you want to start? It would probably need much more like subtext to explain it, but my like thing I end up saying a lot in a lot of different situations is just think about it. Like, stop for a second, think about like what your actual problem is and what are you trying to solve instead of just like, hmm, let's try this. It's like, just take a minute and think about it. Yeah, no, that's a good one. A lot of problems 
Uh, well, I mean, like any job keeping when you, you get caught up in, in, in daily, daily life of, you know, being a keeper and having a job and, and, you know, going through the motions and there's tasks you got to go to and, and deal with, and there's meetings you got to be at, and there's all sorts of stuff like that. And you can kind of get caught up and, and forget to just, you know, really look at a problem and take a step back and, and, and think about it. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a good one. Mine would probably say something more along the lines of um, focusing on if this was a, a poster for the staff at a zoo, I suppose. Um, it would probably emphasize the fact that enrichment is necessary to give every yeah. day, if not multiple times a day. Because I think, and I think we discussed this in our last chat with you, um, it's often the first thing to be crossed off the list if the day gets busy, right? Because you need to feed them, you need to clean them. Um, but it's just as important as veterinary care, honestly. You know, mental health is just as important as physical health, especially in in facilities where they're being cared for by humans because they're not in the wild. And a lot of times these animals aren't, they don't have the freedom to exercise as many natural behaviors as they could in the wild if they were free to choose where to go and what to do and which animals to spend time with and which tree to climb and where to swim. Um, so mine would probably say something like every animal every day or something like that. Give mm, enrichment to every single animal every day. And it's necessary. Um, it's so important. And especially working in an animal shelter now, um, which was totally foreign to me when I took the job um, coming from the zoo world. Um, seeing enrichment affect the behavior and the lives of the animal in the animal shelter is astounding um, to see these problem animals come in and you know they could be from hoarding cases they could be from all different kinds of backgrounds and their behavior is a hundred percent dictated by their stay there and they can degrade and become non-adoption candidates right and they they can never go home with a family because they're dangerous or if you keep them mentally and physically stimulated they'll have a great stay and be able to go home with a family even that has a kid um so it's that is really just I was already a huge proponent of enrichment, but this is even more of a reason to um, to give it and and to really, really be behind enrichment every single day. Yeah, no, and and I think uh, mine would probably say something similar around uh, you know as as the care staff, like you are the biggest input for welfare for that animal. You know the environment and all that stuff is is super important, and the habitat they're in and all that stuff, but you are the one that is going to be providing the biggest, you know, sort of chunk of welfare that they are receiving that day and that week and that year. Uh, because, you know, when you go home, uh, or it, all the places you go and the people you see, like that's uh, the animal is, is in the same spot and, and, and you need to be able to support it. So, and, and yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, from the animal shelter standpoint, uh, one of the things that I've really been interested in is uh, some of the research around like optimistic cognitive bias with animals uh, that have been receiving enrichment. So, you know, like they are actually having a more optimistic, um, mm -hmm. resilient uh, outlook to the world when they are faced with those sort of problems that enrichment is providing them. Uh, and, and that's, yeah, that's probably huge in the, 
in the shelter space for animals that need that sort of optimistic uh, cognitive bias and that resilience to respond appropriately to those situations like new homes and and, and new people in their lives. So uh, yeah, it's, it's super important. Totally. Yep. Yeah. So that just made me think of our last topic we were talking about is I think we go too far both ways. Like, yes, you're overthinking about what like your senses would mean to animal enrichment. But I also think we've gone, we've separated ourselves from animals so much that we refuse to look at like, especially for like emotional state stuff. Like if this is good for a, a human, a child, whatever, for their well-being, and it like in context works and is doable by an animal, it probably makes sense for their emotional well-being. We spend so much time going like, all of these animals are not self-aware. And I'm like, that's, I, those are the dumbest tests in existence, I think. It's like, we should start the other way. Everything is self-aware until proven otherwise, because why yeah. wouldn't you be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same with like experiencing pain and all sorts of stuff like that. It's, we love to make sweeping generalizations when, uh, we probably shouldn't be for those kind of things. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if, uh, people want to, you know, support the enrichment vending machine, um, uh, and, and see a lot of these things that we've been talking about, uh, come to fruition, uh, how would they sort of go, go about that and how, how can they be of support to you guys? Great question. Um, if you go to our website, wildthink.org, um, we've got a big donate button at the bottom and it's pretty much on the bottom of every web page we have on there. So if people want to support and help us, um, we really need funds right now to be able to continue with the upkeep of the five prototypes we have in the zoos in us and canada um the apes really love sticking browse sticks in there and they really love punching them and doing other things so um we pretty much always have a piece that we're trying to print and a fix we're trying to do and a very talented engineer that we're trying to pay so um if anybody wants to help contribute to keeping those up, um, the more successful we are with the upkeep of those um, means the the like the bigger likelihood that we'll be able to actually bring them to market in the future, which is also going to be incredibly expensive um, to have them mass produced is going to be a giant chunk of change. So if people want to support, um, they can do that. And then otherwise, just sharing our posts, our fundraisers on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn. That's yeah, helpful. I would say Instagram is probably the one we want to drive people to the most right now. Facebook is predominantly followed by zoo people already. And they're wonderful people who are very supportive, but um, not our biggest donors, I would say. So yeah. if you happen to be <laughs> interested, but yeah, check us out on Instagram. It's Wild Think Enrichment. Yeah, Which I will. I will link to the little wild enrichment. It's true. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple <laughs> wild uh, 
different things there, but, uh, I will link everything in the show notes. So, uh, people don't get confused, but I mean, if you want to follow me at the same time, you're welcome to, yeah. um, yeah, so, do it all, do it, do everybody. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's uh yeah, no, it's, it's great to uh, collaborate, uh, with you guys and, uh, and, and talk about things that we're all passionate about. So, uh, we need more, more people talking about these things. So, um, thank you so much for, for coming on and, uh, we will, look forward to any updates on the fanning machine, uh, you know, moving forward. So thank you. Thank you both uh, a lot for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for so having much. us. It was fun. It's always fun. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to everyone listening uh, until next time. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.